All right, so we'll get cracking. So we have three cases today. I'll be presenting two, and um, Kurt will be presenting one. So my two cases, uh, one of them is from this hospital, and one of them is from another, uh, Westmead as well. Um, well, the other three are from Westmead, and then Kurt Scott from the kids, or is it here? Yeah, Our kids. Kids, yeah, awesome, okay. So essentially, the gist of this is to sort of go through some interesting cases that we've seen as consultants that have raised some issues, both clinical management-wise, as well as maybe some weird and unusual things that we've done to manage the patients. Talk a little bit about our decision-making processes, um, and then obviously open it up to the group. So if you have any questions, medical students included, and people online, feel free to chime in. Um, this is by no means a didactic talk. This is just an account of events that happened. So we'll just see how it all went down. All right, so the first case, a uh, 63-year-old male um, presented to Albany D at 7 o'clock on a Tuesday evening with abdominal pain. His background, uh, he comes from a group home. He's developmentally delayed, but still able to, still autonomous and uh, has capacity in terms of his own decision-making, um, but non-verbal communication. Um, cerebral palsy from, from childhood is the primary etiology for his developmental delay and reason for placement in a group home because of his high care needs. Previous renal cell carcinoma, but that issue was more than 10 years ago and appears to have resolved uh, a long time ago. No active issues. Two and a half weeks ago, so two and a half months ago, he had presented to Westmead with abdominal pain and had acute urinary retention, thought to be secondary to constipation from a combination of opiate medications that he was on for his chronic pain, secondary to scoliosis in the context of his cerebral palsy, as well as some pressure sores. So during that time, he had some uh, laxative treatment, but then also had an IDC inserted. He had a trial avoid in the community 30 days after that, which he failed, and then had a long-term long indwelling IDC with an outpatient urology follow-up plan that was still in process. The IDC was recited today after another failed trial avoid um, in the afternoon, and he's had abdominal pain since then. Uh, as, as per the group home's nursing observation chart, he had 600 mils of urine output from the IDC. Um, and it was described as being sort of blood-stained, um, but looked like urine, apparently. Um, and essentially, he had severe pain and was very, very agitated. I had a care with him who was saying, well, it's very obvious that he's in a lot of pain. So communicating that quite clearly. Uh, obviously, it was a busy shift, so I was treating him sort of with some subcut morphine because he also has fixed flexion deformities in all four of his limbs. So it's very difficult to get access, so kind of like, like this. So very difficult, no cubital fossa access and very, very thin veins. So he was getting lots of subcut morphine. So he had about five milligrams, uh, three doses of five milligrams subcut morphine. All right, so I, I sort of went by because he was in, you know, after the second dose of morphine, I sort of walked over just to make sure I wasn't missing something horrendous, popped a, an ultrasound on because our bladder scanner was nowhere to be found, and he'd had probably more than a thousand mils in his bladder. Right. So my impression at that stage was the reinsertion of the IDC had been traumatic, um, and he probably had some clots in his bladder that was causing some clot retention. And so I asked one of our locum, the hot zone locum, to hop over and pop in a three-way catheter, and then I promptly walked away to manage another uh, unwell patient. So we pop the IDC in, and then this is what comes out of the IDC. Uh, so I get called, um, and essentially what's happened is I walk into the, to the, bed, to the bed and the, the locum has put the IDC in. There's free-flowing blood coming out of the catheter and then free-flowing blood coming from around the urethra. Okay. Uh, lots and lots of blood. The patient is absolutely in agony, still screaming, only 100 mils in the IDC. It looks something like that. 
uh, could not get the blood in the tubing or the mixture of blood and urine, which is what I thought it was at the time, in the in the tubing to move. So that had all clotted already. Um, Connected up to irrigation, nothing was irrigating. It wasn't. There was no positive flow. Uh, and I repeated the ultrasound, and there's still a whole bunch of um, urine in the bladder. So, what? I guess my first concern at this point was where on earth has this catheter ended up? Uh, and so I was terrified that it had gone into some weird tissue plane that was nowhere near the bladder. So in order to confirm that, that being my, my biggest concern, I got a central line kit and I um, got the, uh, the guide wire from a central line kit and I shoved it up the, the catheter and put the ultrasound and jiggled it around and I could see that the guide wire was at least in the bladder. So I was physically in the right space in terms of where the idea was. Yeah, and you see the long guide wire. Yeah. So I, I, the, the CDC sets are less expensive than the chest train sets. So I got the CDC set out. <laughs> you should be able to see it. No, you should, without the wire, you should be able to see the balloon in the bladder door. Yeah, you should. It's, it's designed to be like that, I found out afterwards. Yes. I couldn't, uh, yeah. I couldn't find the, with any great degree of confidence, I yeah. couldn't find it. I was okay. And that was still my first, most likely diagnosis. So yeah. even when I saw what in retrospect looked to be the bladder tip, just yeah. by, I was like, look, I'm not 100% sure, that's not... It's meant to look like a round circle when you ultrasound okay. your bladder. Okay. It's meant to be a balloon. If it's fluid filled, it's yeah. meant to just look like a, a round circle at the end of the, the mm -hmm. catheter on your ultrasound. Oh, so it'll be it'll be white, will it? Yeah. 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 It'll be correct. It is it is it is white, but black on the inside. But yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't tell. Yeah. So yeah. it'll be white. Yeah. Like a white circle. Uh, like a white circle. Okay. Because okay. right. if it was just black, then because the bladder was completely full, correct. It would be yeah. impossible to tell. It would yeah. de be definitely different to the ultrasound um, fluid, like yeah. urine. Yeah, theoretically, you know, if there's blood and clots, you have echogenic material, and then this one will be actually less echogenic as well. Yeah. yeah. So what I was seeing was lots it's of not theory, but yeah. what you can see is what you can see. I mean, yeah. it's obviously it sounds very pleasant, but this guy's like thrashing around. Yeah. Head, right? So I've got two people restraining his hands. Yeah. Uh, and oh. he's got this blood everywhere, and I'm sort of having a look. There's echogenic material in the bladder. Mm. I wasn't confident. Hard. My going diagnosis was still this has been misplaced, so that's when I got the central line yeah. and I threaded it through, and then the guide wire was still very clearly in the bladder. So yeah. I attempted then to, I figured, well, maybe there's a clot sitting right on the bladder tip, so I attempted to manually aspirate and flush. And unfortunately, we could only irrigate and not flush anything. I could, I could only infiltrate a solution, and nothing was coming out of the catheter. Um, it was very bizarre. And so uh, eventually, after enough negative pressure, got about 20 to 30 mils of blood, of frank yeah. blood. Um, and by this stage, he had gone from groaning to just screaming now. He was in Did you consider a superpubic? Yeah, so, yeah, so essentially at this point, he was just screaming yeah. in pain. So I got him over to Rhesus, um, and I said, look, I don't know what's going on. Okay. So I started scrubbing up for an SPC. Um, he then spiked the temperature to 39 and someone was like, do we have to get into hot zone? Anyway, that's an issue. So he spiked the temperature to 39, so I gave him keftriaxone and gentamicin, thinking that there's already been lots of instrumentation in the last 24 hours of his bladder and he's probably got a whole bunch of gram-negative septicemia going on. Pain management was my next question, uh, and sedation. So I wasn't, at this stage, he had had 20 milligrams of subcut morphine. Mm -hmm. 
haven't really done anything. You wouldn't expect it to do much because I haven't really fixed the problem uh, and probably made it worse by infiltrating 40 mils of saline into the bladder while I was trying to manually flush things. Um, and then my other priorities listed there. So, you know, pain management sedation because I was getting scrubbed up to put the SPC in. Um, trying to figure out what the etiology was because still going with traumatic insertion but trying to think outside the box what else could it be. And then obviously a bigger picture, disposition, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the only thing I was thinking about is um, what size three way do you put? The next question is probably put a bigger one. Yeah. yeah that's really difficult. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't, that thought didn't really cross my mind. I yeah. guess it's a fair thought because then the size of the um, three way would, I guess, reflect the size of the holes at the end. Is that sort of what you're Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the the is the one we usually use. This was a 16 French one, this one that I used. Yeah. Um, Bigger, better, we basically. Yeah, it's probably another thought as well. I haven't yeah. thought about that. Like 21 or something, I think we probably have the, the earth. Yeah, bigger ones, yeah. Big one. But yeah. 30, I think what, what I think is, is a pretty much a one way valve, mm. right? Going in or coming out, and then probably just a few flush, and then a clot just comes, falls mm. back, and then yeah. it's stuck there. Mm. What's happening. Anyway, yeah. that, that's the actual picture of what I ended up aspirating out of his blood. So then I'm, I'm scrubbing up for the SPC. Uh, I had two CMOs who were working with me on that shift. I got one of them to call the urology fellow who said, don't bother with the SPC if it's frank blood because the lumen of the SPC and you won't get much um, much out of it if nothing's coming out of the three-way. What he suggested and what actually ended up working and resulted in that was deflate the, the balloon. Um, and so that, because what happens is as you, when you descend the balloon, the, uh, the tip goes from being circled to elliptical Mm. And it gets stretched out, and so mm. he says that there's a higher likelihood that it will be less able to absorb viscous substances, like deflate it, hold it in place, um, and then continue to aspirate, which we did. Complicated by the fact that he's continuing to scratch around, um, and so I was terrified also that it was just going to fall out um, because it wasn't secure in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so. This is when things started to get a bit hairy. So I gave him keftriaxone, didn't know what to give for the sedation, so I went with ketamine, because I was sort of thinking, you know, we're gonna do an SPC in at this point. I gave the ketamine, and then Ollie was on, uh, Olivia was on, dude, she's like, he's going with blue. I turn around, and it's <laughs> saturated to 70%. I'm hearing the most amazing stridor. Like, See, just this is why you don't use ketamine. Yeah, complete laryngeal spasm. Absolutely terrifying. And so you just, how fast was yeah. that given? Yeah. Well, I didn't know. I just yeah. said, can we give, please give 40 yeah. ketamine? So we have access now. Yes, I got a cannula in the middle of this, uh, and I gave the IV antibiotics, and then whilst I was scrubbing, um, <laughs> urology were on the phone on speaker. They were giving me, so all this is happening at the same time. And so I said, look, we've already given lots and lots of morphine. Don't want to depress his respiratory drive anymore. Let's give him some ketamine. So I don't know how fast the ketamine was given. Um, but I think what I'm getting at for everyone else is, what we're talking about is the faster RSI, so rapid sequence induction, you go boom. Because yeah. who cares if they're happening? Because that's what you want. Yeah. But when you're doing sedation, give slow. So the textbooks talk about 30 seconds to a minute at least, up to two minutes. So right. very slowly. Yeah, because classically talk about ketamine, how it protects it, protects your airway reflexes, protects your breathing, but if you give it boom, everything just stops anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you want to give it nice and slow. He was also like a very unhappy man yeah. at that age. So the problem is that there's that urgency on the gate now quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you can't mm -hmm. get it quickly. Yeah. And I mean this is whilst like this is what's coming out of yeah, the exactly. bladder, right? Just constantly yeah. free flowing. Yeah. Um so yeah, yeah, obviously this desaturated. Interesting because I think it took me like thirty seconds to just like cognitively and then clicked into Oscar. 
So yeah, no. definitely not anaphylaxis at all. No, definitely not. So I exposed him completely. He didn't have any um any uh yeah. I was hearing your voice in the back of my head. And uh and so yeah, so I just grabbed the bag valve, dialed it up to fifteen, got a good seal with two hands and luckily that broke the um the laryngospasm immediately, which was good. Satisfying. and I think I was doing a pretty Really, really push it in his jaw. So we know it's our last point, so basically the angle in the back here, near where the TMG is, it's pushed really hard. Yeah. So like a jaw thrust, a really yeah. bad jaw thrust. So, so laryngospasm is not common um, in general. So uh, I want it. Yeah, okay. and uh, there are certain risk factors that will make laryngospasm more likely in a, in a given patient. Um, Treatment for laryngospasms, you've got like non-medical and medical. So non-pharmacological treatment would be obviously stop what you're doing. Uh, you can put Larson's point pressure there, which uh, is supposed to help, and then positive pressure ventilation, which I did with the bag valve mask here. And then the so next step would be a heap of 10 or something. Yeah, heap of 10. Yeah. Uh, and then if you're panicking, it ends up being 15. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then the pharmacological treatments would be to deepen, paradoxically, to deepen the sedation. Uh, and so you use propofol. So this is getting ready to be there, really. Yeah. yeah. So you so give them a bit of propofol, see if that will break the spasm. And then if that doesn't break it, you give them some paralytics. So usually sucks is what we would use. And then we, by that stage, you're thinking about each bed. I can think about other triggers, like say maybe they actually aspirating and something's coming up, have a look or a vomiting suction. Yeah. yeah. And ketamine is a bit of a double, double whammy because it will make you hypersecretory as well, which mm -hmm. is one of the side effects of ketamine. So it will also irritate that upper airway and trigger laryngospasm. Although it's still a very, very rare complication. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's not I was like, isn't there enough problems going on? Anyway, so he did aspirate during this whole uh, nonsensical episode, so I added on some metronidazole to his cover just uh, during this time as well. Okay, so now that that was done, I still didn't really answer what was going on with him. I didn't really understand. Luckily, now, we had relieved some of his pain. We've got about 500 mils of blood or blood slash urine from the bladder. Uh, so this is after this and deflated. Deflated the, uh, deflated the balloon and yeah. then started manually aspirating. Yeah. And we were just aspirating. So no flushing, but just aspirating. Just aspirating. And he had settled. Whether he was now dissociated from the ketamine yeah. or whether we had relieved some of his distension, I yeah. don't know, but he had settled. Yeah. And then obviously everything just dials back a little bit yeah. if that's the case. Yeah. Now I guess my question is, um, you know, treating for sepsis is already done, but what is the etiology of this bleeding? Mm -hmm. I have absolutely no idea. I looked at the the jar, and I was like, that just looks like blood. Mm -hmm. So I decided to run a matched venous sample. So I ran a, mm -hmm. do you know, to figure out whether it was arterial or venous blood, um, or, you know, blood that we mixed with urine. I did a VBG, and then I sent off the blood from that I'd aspirated from the bladder mm -hmm. through the VBG machine as well, mm -hmm. and they were both the same. So I was like, they were exactly the same. So I was like, okay, so this is just venous bleeding, so I don't need to waste my time and go to an NGO here at Auburn. Um, and so then I thought he's either got bladder trauma or he's bleeding from something higher up. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you just had traumatic, uh, like if you had, say, a bladder full of urine and you've inserted an IDC and it's traumatized the local tissue, what you'll get is urine plus blood, which means your gas will look horrendous, like really abnormal. But his gas looked basically physiological, like he had a sodium of 135 and a chloride of 110, yeah. which means there's no urine in that bladder. It's yeah. all just blood. Um, and so it's probably not from trauma, he's probably got something else going on. So he needed some sort of definitive imaging. Um, and that's kind of how I got, got to that conclusion. Spoke to the urology registrar, who then suggested, and I spoke to uh, Mark Salter, who was on at Westmead, and they suggested just to clamp the IDC for now, given that he was a bit more chilled out, um, just so he doesn't keep hemorrhaging. TXA was suggested, I gave it, but I don't think there's any evidence for it. I mean, I think 
in general, TSA is going further and further out of vogue from my understanding of the more recent papers, even for Epi Saxis now, there's very poor evidence, uh, and mm. obviously for all the other stuff. So anyway, I gave a couple of things got any evidence. Mm. Claimed the IDC, um, and then sort of thought, asked, could there be anything else that I could be missing? I didn't think there was, and then transported him over to, um, to Westmead. And I guess, thinking about it, this was basically what I ended up trying to do for most of it. Uh, and it was always just trying to figure out what could be the alternative diagnosis, which for me would be an arterial hemorrhage, because that would need interventional radiology as opposed to theatres for a venous hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was my day. Uh, did, so, they, so did they do a CT in here? Yeah, they did anyway. They didn't believe my, my, my match. Sense. It was quite hard to use the uh, gas yeah. on here, I guess. Yeah. For me, it was more, do I need to rush him through in orbit? Now. Yeah. Uh, before he goes to Westmead, because the lights and sirens was taking 50 minutes to an hour to come. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it was absolutely pouring on that day. And he was not shocked. And he was not shocked. Yeah. And so I said, look, you know, he's actively bleeding. Yeah. Uh, would there be a benefit of running him through so I can call IR and prep everything and maybe even bypass yeah. ED over there? Mm. Um, yeah. And so in, instead, because it was, it was matched, I sort of didn't think I needed to bother mm. with that. And I could do more optimal scanning at Westmead if I needed to. Mm. So and was it matched in terms of your oxygenation and carbon dioxide that you said it was venous? Yeah, yeah. It could have easily been matched arterial. No, yeah, so everything was, so I pulled a VBG off the yeah, yeah. that I inserted. Yeah. Um, he was on six litres at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then I pulled the bladder, the bladder like yeah. PO2 was 35. Yeah. It was very much a venous gas yeah. on yeah. both of them. The numbers were the same. Okay. Yeah. 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 I just don't know, like, say, what if the blood stays, say it is arterial and it stays yeah. there for, I don't know. Well, we don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. No, what no, happens? Does it go down to 30 or does it stay appeal? Well, you would expect the PO2 to. To diffuse, right? Yeah. Would yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no physiological difference between yeah. venous blood mm -hmm. and arterial. I, I actually don't know because yeah. I think CO2 is more soluble in that sense. Yeah. I don't know. But it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the numbers were the same, so I was, it was very curious. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I don't yeah. know how much of a call you could make uh, on that. Maybe a, a, an actual arterial sample from yeah. the patient, and then and then the sample from the bladder would be better. Yeah. Because then you could tell. Because um, if they were the same, then that would be yeah. concerning. So if it is an arterial, we would expect the hemodynamic instability very sooner than the later. Look, it's hard to know. Yeah. Uh, generally, yes. Generally, arterial hemorrhages will be more unstable because the volume of bleeding will be greater. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, many, many, many pelvic fractures, the vast majority of them are venous oozes, and those patients are also quite unstable. Mm -hmm. um, the way I think about it is arterial is generally a single point of hemorrhage and venous losing tends to imply like a very large surface area. And so the total blood loss can be dramatic in either instances. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things where without an angiogram, like some sort of arterial imaging, it's going to be very hard to differentiate between the two. And you need to make sure that you're, you're not um, thinking that it's one or the other based mm -hmm. on just clinical judgment. It's very hard, I think, clinically to determine that. And not that it's highly relevant here. This patient's renal function is going to be off, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And they're going to just insult the kidney even more contrast, yeah. but what can we do? Yeah. Yeah. They won't clamp the character in order to give a tamponade effect? No, they said clamp because all I was doing was just, he was just bleeding everywhere. And they were like, it's not actually achieving anything now that he's comfortable. Just clamp it for now mm -hmm. for transport purposes more than anything else. They unclamped it once he got to Westmead. Okay, nothing came after that. Yeah. yeah. It's hard, isn't it? The, the traditional thinking is flush it until it is, it's no longer thick. Yeah. yeah, and now we're like, oh, it's a bit much. Five minutes already. What should I do now? Yeah. It's really like a chest drain thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So like chest trauma, usually you say more than one point two liter comes out, you go to the theater. But in the meantime, we're waiting. What do you do? You clamp it or do you keep draining? Yeah, yeah, same thing. There's, there's controversy about that, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's ended up what ended up happening. So 
got the CTNGO, had a large uh, RCC, which was a new gone from his left to his right now. Yeah. Uh, and that was the cause of the bleeding. He was midnight urology, didn't need any intervention, was booked for a nephrectomy. Um, but his, interestingly enough, he was um, the bleeding stopped on its own and then his urine changed from frank blood to port wine after about 24 hours and then clear three days later on discharge. So he actually had a reasonable outcome. I honestly thought I was going to kill him from respiratory sepsis because of the whole ketamine incident. Um, and I was just following refreshing. So he was just discharged on augmented, which was good. Um, yeah, uh, he had a six liter oxygen requirement when I transferred it. He had a reasonably significant aspiration. So with the, with the ketamine, what did you do? Just, uh, just so yeah, oh, I, yeah well, I just got the bag valve. Yeah. He was breathing. It's not that he wasn't breathing, he was breathing, so I didn't have to ventilate him. I just needed to break the spasm. Yeah. So I got the bag valve mask, two hands, make sure you have an absolutely brilliant seal, because that's what's key, because yeah. the peak <laughs> delivery is going to be based on how good your seal is. Mm. So I just made sure I had a good seal, and then I was doing as much of a license as I could manage with him, sort of like sideways on the bed like mm. this. Uh, held that position for about a minute, and his, um, okay. his spasm broke. Yeah. So what, how can you tell that there was some there was effect? How do you know that there was a, a change? Is it just by the noise or? So the noise subsided. Uh, I mean, I held the bag there for about five five minutes, and I was just like making sure. Uh, but yeah, the noise broke. Right. Yeah, yeah. Was someone bagging or not really? No, no, I didn't want anyone to bag. No, no, no. Ventilating fine. Yeah, so yeah. I just dialed the flow up. Yeah. All the way. Because um, what I'm getting at is the only other ways you can tell yeah. the resistance. Yeah. Uh, again, with the usual. The but we're like, really yeah, we're done. Happy bags. Maybe yeah. with the peds ones, like the special, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the softer ones, but not with other. You can't get any feedback from the bag. And you guys realize that you have to put the peed attachment on the bag, yeah? yeah? And you have to dial it up. It's not an automated thing that is on the bag and valve because a lot of people don't know that the peak valve is on the top drawer of the airway trolley. You actually have to purposely dial it up, then connect it onto the bag, and then put your hands and make a very, very good seal. And that seal means that they can't expire out. Okay, And that's what's holding the peak to break the lingual spasm. You will have the spontaneous breathing to go rather than yeah, 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 yeah. So look, bagging in spontaneously breathing patients is difficult. Not a good idea, yeah. generally. Increased risk of aspiration because yeah. it goes into your esophagus as well, don't forget. Yeah. So you need more pressure. Yeah. And so that whole pre-oxygenation phase, if the patient's breathing, then they're ventilating in a reasonable way, just leave them be and support their, their ventilations with appropriate PEEP and high flow oxygen, which is essentially what I was doing. But I guess at that time you're already being well, I was I was really trying to avoid it. I mean, I well, think you need to think about it. Yeah, you have to prep and think. It all happened very fast because mm. um, then there was about six things happening at once, right? Like I asked someone to get the ketamine. We were doing the matched BBG sample. Mm. Urology was on the phone, and I was scrubbed at that point with the SBC kit open in front of me. Uh, and so, and someone was on to guardianship trying to get, trying to get all this out. So lots of things were happening. And so when Olivia said the patient's blue, I just kind of dropped everything, turned around, got the bag, and just without it's even It's something that reflects. Yeah, it wasn't really a conscious thought process. So I think if I hadn't, if the size was still 70, I obviously would have just duped him. Um, but is, it brings back the point of any procedural sedation, mm. you have to set it up like you're going to do a tube. Have your stuff on top of the trolley, mm. ready to go, know where your peak valve is, have it dialed, 
everything like that because these things happen with yeah. you. Residual sedation, I find, is much more dangerous than an actual tube yeah. because you're keeping them very light sedated and that's a fine point where you tip them over the edge and then you're yeah. done, right? Whereas you purposefully mm. knock them out when you do a tube and so... Much more controlled. There's no way you really get ketamine induced or ringospasm if you've committed to doing a proper dose mm. and a proper tube. Whereas this is very, very dangerous. And the other one, it sounds like, I mean, I'm probably being a little bit overly critical here, but it's about raw allocation again, of getting yeah. a procedure sedation, someone doing a procedure. There should be a procedure, I mean, there should be a sedation doctor as well, mm -hmm. right, show, watching the sets like that, watching yeah. the patient breathing, looking yeah. at entire CO2, as opposed to, oh, shit, you change roles now. So just be very careful, especially overnight when you're doing that. You yeah. should get enough hands. Call, call us if you need more hands. Mm -hmm. Like you somehow need to do something urgently now, mm -hmm. and you're not sure or not you need more hands. Or maybe you also may be sus, but guess what? Not running the department. Maybe you need us to help out with that, or vice versa as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. No, I think uh, like earlier it was the CMO. Yeah. Did a great job. Like yeah. Immediately escalated. Yeah. Um, and was the one with the monitor awareness because. Mm -hmm. The way the monitor was positioned, it was like I was behind the monitor scrubbing because mm -hmm. that's yeah, where the trolley was. I wasn't in front of the patient, so I didn't. Yeah, I couldn't see the monitor. Um, I think there's work in progress. That can but that's the reason, yeah, why we decided yeah, the resource has to go that certain way because mm -hmm. the doctor can see better yeah. than if you had the monitor behind you. Yeah. Okay. So okay. capnograph won't help in that scenario. Uh, capnograph like for, uh, for detecting the respiratory. It, it will. It will. Yeah. Yeah. For the respiratory depression or for the diagnosis? No, here I think the respiratory drive is happening. Yeah. Uh, but the stridor and then that's why it's the cyanosis we think. Yeah. So the, my question is usually we capture those things with the capnograph. You can do. You have to remember that the capnograph is not a precise instrument. Mm. Especially uh, when it's not completely close to like an yeah, patient. Yeah, so what are you really looking for on the capnograph, I guess is the question. So yeah. if you're looking for a drop in CO2 to, as a proxy for poor ventilation, as a proxy for upper airway obstruction, I guess that's the link you're trying to make, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, sure, but uh, I'd put you in a practical sense that the numbers that you get from a capnography in someone who's agitated, mm -hmm. like when it's not placed it moves mm -hmm. around, I wouldn't use that alone. It's very much a clinical diagnosis and something that you need to have a very high suspicion of, otherwise you just miss it, right? If you're not thinking laryngospasm is a complication of ketamine, you just miss it. So the saturation will be definitely dropped. Yeah, yeah, the saturation. That's already your too late. Yeah, that means we missed the bucket. That means he probably was stridoring for about a 30 seconds to a minute before we picked it up. I wasn't paying attention because I was scrubbing. Um, and then when I turned around, that was the only thing that I could hear. I was like, oh my God, there was just so much uh, stridal. Um, and so that we became obvious to me once I focused, which is another probably good point for that sort of situational awareness. Because mm. I, I was the only sort of senior person who was comfortable putting an SPC and no one else mm. in the department had done one. And so that I, I had to do it. Um, Did you have a banana set? Yeah, yeah, I found a banana set. Um, you guys know how to use the banana set? Well, I've never really actually done it. Like it's, a, it's actually not hard it's to not hard. do, yeah, and there's a very easy YouTube yeah. video to follow, which Vince and I did. Uh, yeah, the only thing you have to be careful about is obviously you have that metal sharp introducer. Yeah. When you're initially threading it over the banana catheter, you just need to make sure don't you don't puncture it. the catheter. Because yeah. the banana catheter is like circular, right? Yeah. And the introducer is obviously dead straight, and it's sharp at the end. So when you're trying to straighten out the catheter, yeah. you just have to sort of straighten it's it. It's actually easier than cannulating, because yeah. there's no way you can miss, miss a target. It's a ginormous yeah, so you, know, you just put it in, yeah. and you slide it in the catheter. Do we have one for yeah. study, for, for education purpose? You can just open up the set. 
Yeah. Well, well, we actually have one for OSCE exams. Um, yeah, yeah, training yeah. the guys doing OSCE is an open one somewhere. How long the learning process last? Like how long? I mean, it felt like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably, <laughs> probably, probably a couple of minutes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I think probably ninety seconds. Because the, the next difficult one is you have to say, okay, maybe I'll say, child, get ready for intubation. Yeah. It comes to how long are you going to wait for yeah. a difficult question. Yeah. Like, so yeah, I've got a patient who's, you know, bed bound, essentially. Yeah. Uh, like, ventilator prognosis is poor. Yeah. But mm -hmm. then this is where I always struggle because the complications are hydrogenic. Like, it's my fault yeah. that the patient's gone into spasm. Right? He didn't come in with a respiratory complaint. Yeah. So my argument would be that I probably have to tube him in that case, even if I didn't think it was going to be great for his overall outcome. Yeah. Uh, I think I'd be sort of uh, sort of bound by my mm. practice principles to, to do that. Yeah. Anyway, any questions? Next section, and you are down the line. Yeah. If the fifth fifth doesn't work, probable. And then and then sucks very quickly after that. Oh, finally, grab a kilogram probable. I'll just give one wow. kilo. He had a blood pressure of 180 or something. The the thing with uh, sedation, and obviously you guys chime in because this is just my form on the thing. Mm. You need to be definitive in what you're going for. So where people get into trouble with administering procedural sedation is the middle dosing. You, they don't give enough to, they, they either give too much sedative, if they're trying to sedate someone, they give too much propofol and then the patient becomes apneic, or they're trying to tube someone and they give too little of the dose, right? It's that middle dosing where you, so you need to be clear in your mind, what are you trying to achieve with the drug that you're giving? So in that instance, my, my uh, desire would be to make the patient apneic. I'd be happy to take over the ventilation. Mm. I just want to break the spasm. And so, uh, in that situation, I'd be giving one per kilo. I wouldn't yeah. mess around with 0.5 because then you don't know what's happening. You're like, well, is the spasm still there because I haven't given enough propofol, or is the spasm still there? It has to be a tubable dose. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as a general principle, you should always be thinking about being very de definitive in the reason why you're giving the sedation and not give the middle doses. Yeah. Anyone got questions online? Or? Yeah, anyone got any questions online? Um, could I just ask? You, you mentioned that um, the guy is bedbound at baseline, therefore has a bad ventilator prognosis. But if he's been bedbound, like if he's chronically bedbound and yet he's still deemed to have enough quality of life to be, you know, warranting all of these other sort of medical interventions, would a sort of temporary intervention really, like a temporary intubation, really be such a terrible thing? Well, I mean, it's not so much the intubation, right? He's basically already got a VAP before I tube him, because he's aspirated. Like, I know he's aspirated because he's desaturating terribly and he's got hypersecretory airways. So even a normal person, I say normal, it's probably not fair, someone with no other medical problems, otherwise fit and healthy, the mortality and morbidity from a ventilator-acquired pneumonia is high, like significant, adds two to threefold to your mortality from whatever ICU problem you got admitted with in the first place. So my argument would be, sure, he's, the intervention for the catheter is the diagnosis is still unclear, so I don't know what the mortality of that injury is, but I do know that if someone has an underlying aspiration infection, their risk of a VAP is higher, and someone who's going to have a VAP means that they're going to have longer ventilation times, mm -hmm. and he's going to be someone who's like, he's already, we all could it, but he was, you know, bed-bound and not someone who has the greatest chest wall muscles, uh, and so weaning the ventilator from him is going to be high risk, and that's sort of how I got to that conclusion that he would be uh, a poor candidate for, mm -hmm. for ventilation. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. So is, is, is aspiration then sort of equivalent to VAP in that sort of a situation? Look, it's not the same, but what it does suggest, so VAP is essentially, you've got a ventilator-required pneumonia, is what we're talking about when we say VAP, and essentially 
it's from the dead space in the tubing, really, is, is where the infection is coming from, which is, which is why it's hospital acquired and therefore has very high mortality. And so my, my thing is, he's already got an underlying infection now, and he's already got some degree of aspiration going on there. That's going to be complicated by me intubating him. And then, because he's already got an active inflammatory process in his lungs, then developing a VAP will be even higher, uh, a higher risk. And so uh, I don't think it's the same. They're not equivalent, but his risk for a VAP would, would have been very high, at least in my head. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. Should we move on to the but next? There's a question. Oh, yeah. So if you do insert a catheter and you're suspecting that it's been misplaced and you see blood, you wouldn't just take it out straight away. You have to investigate. Yeah, yeah. So if you cause enough damage to cause hemorrhage, um, generally the rule of thumb is don't take out what you've put in until yeah. you properly assess the situation. So the classic example, so catheter trauma is pretty rare. Like it's not common to randomly put an IDC in somewhere where it shouldn't be. Um, you've got to use a lot of force to break those tissue planes. But the classic one would be when you, if you put a central line in, uh, like mm -hmm. if someone accidentally puts it into the carotid artery, don't take that out. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, you leave that in. And so you can use that principle anywhere else. If you accidentally put something where it's not supposed to be, generally stop, leave it in, and then try and figure out what to do. Take your time. Is usually you don't want to close out. Yeah, you don't want to pull it out and then realize, oh no, I put that catheter in the femoral artery and now it's just bleeding through his penis and now I don't know what to do. That's less than ideal. At least this I can clamp it and control it. Okay. That's not what happened here, but anyway. It's just a That is anatomically impossible. The principle remains. Okay, so I think for me the main thing was the IDC stuff because I haven't done this before. And deflating the IDC balloon was an interesting trick. Uh, it's nice to know that PEEP actually works. This is mm -hmm. only the second laryngospasm I've managed. This is the first one outside of theatres. So, um, yeah, it's nice to know that PEEP actually works. You should buy the lottery to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a very rare competition for you to have Yeah. And, yeah, it's obviously me typing this uh, PowerPoint when I was tired at night. Uh, so blood gas comparison, I guess that's something. And then vulnerable patient populations, communication consent was really problematic because he was under the guardianship. And so it's one of those things where everything fell in under emergency. Mm -hmm. uh, but after a certain point, you're thinking, you know, tubing and all that sort of jazz, someone needs to be spoken to about the potential consequences. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. So this was my next next action uh, at Westmead. Uh, I was in front of house. It's like every dizzy patient under 40, under 50 just gets referred to the front of house <laughs> section. And I just found it really interesting because. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading around uh, clinical heuristics and sort of decision-making processes. And having had cases, these cases presented to me by registrars, it was interesting to see decision-making processes mm. around vertigo. So vertigo, for the medical students, specifically refers to like, the sensation of the room spinning around uh, rather than just dizziness, which is one of the first things you need to differentiate it from. Lots of etiologies, but you can divide it primarily into central and peripheral. Everyone's always freaking out about stroke, um, which I guess is the main thing we're all trying to rule out here. Um, but there are lots and lots of causes, each of which are specific treatments. All right, so we'll go through three patients. Uh, each one had a different clinical outcome, and then we'll um, talk about why and how, and what are some of the tools that we use and some of the pitfalls in how we assess patients with vertigo. So first patient was a 33-year-old ICU nurse who presented uh, from her shift upstairs down to Westmead ED, feeling very dizzy. Um, has had previous episodes of vertigo lasting seconds to minutes. This was, uh, lasted a few hours, um, and it was worse on head movement, no prodromal viral illness or any other medical problems. She was quite ataxic when she was walking and needing me to sort of walk her in from the waiting room. Um, she had unidirectional right-sided nystagmus with a positive uh, VOR and otherwise a normal examination. Uh, the Dick Swarpipe was positive, and so I sort of reasonably confident to diagnose BPPV. Um, 
and then I tried the Epleys and made it worse, and then the intern tried the Epleys and killed it. So make, make, of that, make of that what you will. <laughs> make of that what you will. You made it easier for the intern. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't think that. I like to think that. Um, so it, this was, and she got discharged sort of within three hours. Uh, I tried a bit of stem at all because I was embarrassed about that. My Epleys not working. Admitted it a short stay, and then the uh, JMO did the Epleys there and fixed her, and then she walked out. So I guess from this case, you know clear demonstration of what we would classify as peripheral vertigo, right? So, you know, leave the hints exam, exam aside, because we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but, you know, you've got sudden onset, you've got paroxysmal nature, you've got no other cerebellar signs on, on examination, and a, a lady who's otherwise quite well and quite young. And so it fits that benign paroxysmal positional, all of those boxes are ticked, and vertigo. Uh, and so that was the reason why I came to that diagnosis. And she improved with the appropriate treatment themselves. Could be. Patient two. Um, this patient was dizzy rather than vertigo, uh, although eventually after, I think, uh, the registrar asked enough times, he managed to convince himself that dizziness, dizziness might have been vertigo, but it was, I think, mostly dizziness. Symptoms mainly whilst moving, though, uh, nothing whilst staying still. No significant background, was otherwise quite well. Also profoundly ataxic, and he had symptoms for about a week now, so I don't know why it had taken him so long to come to the ED, but he was unable to walk again from the waiting room to the, to, um, to the front of house beds. He got a, uh, the initial impression was, you know, whether there was, this could be a basilar artery pathology given the nature of the symptoms, not being vertigo, uh, and also being you know, profoundly ataxic clinically. Didn't actually have any other cerebellar signs present. He had a CT brain and angio performed and they were both normal. We discussed the case with neurology because he still had some persistent symptoms. Um, uh, the neurologist on call wasn't clear what the diagnosis might be, but suggested uh, urgent MRI as an outpatient to be organised, and then some rank follow-up uh, within the week, mm -hmm. rather than an admission to the stroke unit because he didn't have any other cerebellar signs. So for the Megosolens, rank is rapid access neuroclinic. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the diagnostic dilemma here was, once again, boils down to central versus peripheral. We're not really talking about vertigo here. Uh, which is the key, right? So you can't use your vertigo assessments in patients who don't have vertigo. So it's things like your HINTS examination uh, and all that. HINTS can only be done in the context of someone who actively, currently has vertigo. So if someone had vertigo 12 hours ago, doing a HINTS exam holds no diagnostic here. Uh, so very important to remember. Uh, and in these sort of situations, you're thinking central, so you need to thoroughly investigate. The reason we do angios, um, so the reason we do the angio is uh, because the clot retrieval time is longer than the thrombolysis time. So even if someone falls out of thrombolysis time, like if they come in eight, nine, ten hours after their stroke or their symptoms onset, still worthwhile doing an angio because in those patients, they might have a clot which could be retrieved. Um, and then all these up to 24 hours, hours yeah. for clot retrieval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Clot retrieval is 24 hours. And it seems month by month they're improving their skills and being able to clot retrieve more and more clots in more and more places. Mm -hmm. And so it's always worthwhile getting an angio done. Often it's difficult to explain that to the radiologists, particularly if you don't work at a tertiary stroke, stroke centre and you're trying to speak to the radiologists here during the day. Sometimes they can get a bit confused as to why they're doing that, but that's the reason. Okay, so the third patient. Um, this one was a 40-year-old male with vertigo, very clearly vertigo for three days, worse than the last 12 hours. It's an associated nausea and vomiting. Uh, on examination, he had the most amazing, I saw this patient, he had the most amazing bidirectional nystagmus. Um, so is everyone familiar with what that or bidirectional nystagmus means, yeah, great. Um, just very ataxic. He had a very clearly positive uh, vestibular ocular reflex. Um, Is it meaning impairment of, or what do you mean by that? No, so uh, when I say positive, it was present, which means he had the circadic movement on head. 
So meaning when you do it in his house, it's a corrective saccade. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and it was consistent yeah. after repeat examination and only appeared to be, so it was a rightward saccade on both sides. Yeah. So it was always, always in the one direction. No other cerebellar signs at all. Impression here? So if you look, if you, if you guys remember the Hintz examination, obviously head impulse is one of them. And a positive head impulse test would indicate peripheral, mm -hmm. right? Um, so when you have that saccade, uh, that would be a peripheral sign, but then the bidirectional nystagmus is unusual for someone with peripheral. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, I did this not like I have no idea, but this is obviously a bit weird. So uh, I ended up doing a non-contrast CT brain, um, primarily because uh, it had been going on for three days, and I wasn't 100% convinced that this was going to be a stroke. Mm -hmm. uh, spoke to neurology, who came up with this hilarious plan, where initially it was, you know, it's fine, you can go home, and then the neurologist called back at 4 a.m. in the morning, and asked them to bring the patient back to ED for a CT brain and angio and got admitted and has had an MRI brain which is pending still. Um, but their crudinal diagnosis is vestibular neuritis, which is a peripheral cause of vertigo. Um, wow. Okay, so this was all very dissatisfying for me because only the Epilepsy was a real diagnosis, or the lady with BPVD was a real diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I sort of was thinking about the processes behind our approach to vertigo in the ED and some mm -hmm. really common pitfalls. And there's a few things that I think I found. So there was a recent review of the Hintz examination in 2020. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with that or if you've read. There's a one about emergency physicians not yeah. doing a good job. Yeah, yeah. 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 unless you've got like, your camera set up on slow mode. So your, your original study was based on three neuropathologists. Yeah. And obviously, they, got, they scored better than MRI scan. For those who don't know, if you do a Hintz exam properly and you're a neuropathologist. It was trained for many years. Yeah, your sensitivity and specificity is more than 96%. Which uh, is better than MRI scan. Yeah. Right. So I was like, oh, let's do it. Then comes to the emergency physicians that do it. Yeah, it's very. <laughs> yeah. I think it speaks to a lot about how we use the, yeah. the yes. So I mean, like, it's one of those things where you just always have to be very, very skeptical uh, about all of the things. Mm. All the time. Uh, so the couple, two examples that I'll quote. So this one's a really obvious one. So when this came out three or four years ago, it was like the bees needs, right? Because no place has an MRI except on this town of Android, and so getting an MRI in the ED is impossible. No one really understands how to work out vertigo in the ED, even though we all pretend we do. Um, and so the Hintz exam was the catch-all, right? If we do this properly and the Hintz exam is negative, then we are ruling out 100% of uh, central causes of vertigo. Um, however, they did a review of this and, uh, yeah, we're terrible. So our sensitivity is 83% and our specificity is 44%. So if you think about so likelihood ratios and things, we'll talk all about all this in a second, but we're not very good generally, uh, and that's because we're just not very good at examining patients. Um, because we don't only examine neuroophthalmology stuff for our whole lives in clinics. And so when you compare us to a neuroophthalmologist, we're very poor. What does that mean and how do you apply that? Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the other classic example is TXA. So TXA, when that came on the scene, was literally used for all causes of bleeding everywhere. And now, one by one, they're doing studies for each etiology of bleeding, and it's got no evidence for anything, really. So it's one of those things where you need to be skeptical, either in a positive or in a negative sense, with every study that you use. And this is a classical example of that. So I read the literature, obviously very depressed by how bad we are, um, and tried to figure out what that would actually mean for me clinically the next time you see these patients with vertigo. So what does the difficulty that I always found is you get sensitivity and specificity values for a test or for a clinical examination finding. You're given likelihood ratios. Don't know what any of that actually means. How does that translate to bedside assessment of a patient? Um, a few things that I did find was sensitivity and specificity are obviously prevalence-based. So if you look at the, how the, the statistics are calculated, 
the sensitivity and specificity for a given test, you know, given clinical examination finding, is based on the prevalence of that disease in the population that you're examining or you're seeing. Likelihood ratios, because they're a ratio, they eliminate that need for being prevalence-based. And so a lot of literature now is trending towards using likelihood ratios rather than sensitivity and specificity when you're evaluating how good or how bad a given intervention is, because it eliminates that need to know the prevalence of the disease in your population. The table on the right is taken directly from Wikipedia, and it sort of shows what does a likelihood ratio of 1.4 actually mean in terms of your post-test probability likelihood, right? Mm. Not very much. So if you're thinking if someone's got a positive HINCE examination, that's a positive likelihood ratio of 44%, oh, sorry, 1.4 rather, and that will only slightly increase the, the chance that the patient's got a stroke. Sensitivity, which I guess is what we're all after in the ED, because we, we're more trying to rule out the life-threatening diagnoses. Um, 0.38, which once again is only a moderate to slight decrease. Right? So not very good in either way. Um, so what does this mean? How do you take this information? How do you use it? And I guess that brings us to this. So I don't know if anyone's seen this table before, but I have blotted out all statistics from medical school because it was so traumatic for me. But essentially, the way to approach it is when you see a patient clinically, right, uh, you form what we call a pretest probability uh, of the patient having whatever disease. So let's take the vertigo patients. You see them, you do a history, you do an examination. And then based on your clinical gestalt, you form a pretest probability of, I think this patient's 60% chance of having a stroke, right? Then you go to whatever test you have, so that could be a HINCE examination, that could be a CT scan, and then you ask of that test, you say, does this patient have a stroke? You look at the likelihood ratio, and if that test is positive, uh, let's say that adds a likelihood ratio to that, and you draw a line. So let's say the pretest probability is 60, so on the left you can see 60 there, and let's apply our hints examination, which was positive. So that was 1.4. So between 1 and 2 on the middle, you draw a direct line, and that goes up. And so that will make your post-test probability about 60 to 70% that chance that the patient's got uh, a stroke. Now, was your hints exam very useful? I don't really know in that situation, because it only makes it 60 70%. It's not very likely. But what that might mean is, well, this patient probably needs a CT scan, right? Because I'm not happy with that 60 to 70% chance that the patient's got a stroke. So it helps in that decision-making. It might not help you have a diagnosis. But then what you can do is you can apply it consecutively to patients, right? So say if I do the HINCE exam and I come up with a number of post-test probability of 60%, I can then say, okay, now I want to do a CT scan. So now we go back and we say our pretest probability is 60% now we've done the HINCE exam, and then we have a positive CT that shows a stroke. Well, we know that CT is very specific for old strokes, and so that likelihood ratio is somewhere upwards of 50, and so you draw a line between 60 and 50, and you get 99% chance that this patient's got a stroke. So they've probably got a stroke, okay? This is essentially what I've been doing my whole life, but I didn't realize because I hate the statistics and I hate maths. And so, but it helps me understand from a bedside perspective, what am I doing when I have these investigations, and how am I using it from a bedside clinical standpoint? I think that was my biggest takeaway from this, because this was headache-inducing shift to just constant vertigo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and sort of, and so I you can take that and apply it to anything and any test, and all tests will have a likelihood ratio. The biggest difficulty that people will have is getting your pretest probability. How do you do that, right? So there's two ways to do it. So the first way is your clinical tools. So your well score will give you a pretest probability, for example, in, in, in DBT. All of your Ottawa ankle, knee, subarachnoid rules, C-spine rules, all of them, are, the whole point of them is to give you a pretest probability for a given question. Right? The other, other, um, other way to do it is clinical gestalt. Right? And time and time again, where's the clinical impression? So experienced clinicians 
outperform most of these scores in terms of determining whether a patient has. So the classical one is pediatric head injury scoring. So uh, you know it's been proven in multiple studies that experienced clinician gestalt is more sensitive and specific than any of those clinical prediction rules for the presence of yeah. uh, interventional need, intervention requirements. But I guess those rules mitigate you having to have gestalt in the first place. Well, right? the, the, the tools, the way I use the tools is primarily teaching things. Because all the tools have done, they're basically a massive multivariate analysis. So what they've done is they've taken one million patients who had a CT head and had something that neurosurgeons needed to do about. They went back on all those patients, looked at every single commonality between all those patients with history, examination findings, and then made that into a rule. But that's what you do anyway. If you see lots of patients, that's how your mind works anyway. But it's very good for, for junior clinicians and people who want to learn what are the important questions to ask then the tools are a great place to start. And the tools are weighted differently, right? And they're weighted in that way because having cancer is more of a risk factor for a PE than having a heart rate of 101. And so the cancer is rated 1.5 and a heart rate of 100 is rated 1. Mm -hmm. And that, that weighting is there as well. So you can get really good understanding of what makes you more high risk. Mm -hmm. But as you progress, you find, uh, certainly for me, I don't use the clinical assessment tools as much as I used to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you'll find that even if the assessment tool says something is negative, if my gut tells me it's not, then I will just go ahead and I'll do it. Uh, yeah. I'll do the CT scan for the subarachnoid because I'm worried. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the studies will back that practice up because you know, yeah. um, that's it. Any questions online? Yeah. Can, you, can you explain that thing about sensitivity and prevalence again? I don't understand. Now, I'm not a mathematician, <laughs> but if you look at how sensitivity is calculated based off the raw numbers, the denominator is almost is, is prevalence in those situations and is disease prevalence. So you, I guess the way I phrase it, it's very hard to understand because all these concepts are really esoteric. But the easiest way to remember it and, and the way I think about it is, you know, the febrile patient that comes to the ED, right? Like why do we culture those patients all the time? The reason we culture them is because the prevalence of sepsis in patients presenting to ED, that ED population, is much higher than those patients who present to the general practice. That's why GPs don't do blood cultures and don't do bloods on all their patients who come with fevers. Um, and we, we do because the prevalence of disease is so high. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the blood culture has diagnostic yield because it has a reasonable specificity because the prevalence is high enough for it to hold clinical diagnostic value. Whereas in a GP setting, it's hard to know what that might mean. The incidence of contaminants will probably be a lot higher. And because the prevalence of bacterial sepsis is so low, you'll get a lot of false positives. Mm -hmm. um, and so and that's the reason why it's not done in that situation. And so the prevalence will affect the false positive and false negative rate, and that will sort of dumb down the ability of you to use these investigations. And so you really need to be thinking about the population in which you're doing an investigation if you want to know how to interpret it properly. Um, does that answer your question, Shreyas? Yeah, thanks. I, I just, I hate statistics. Yeah. <laughs> if we're into it, we're probably in the wrong profession, really. Um, so I think uh, Rajesh did send me a comment from Teams. I think he's copy and pasted someone's comment about the study, which is actually what was in my mind as well. So I think, um, just going back to the hits, uh, I'm a believer, unfortunately. Um, but I think the take home from one of the commentators online as well, which is not the authors, is you need to pick and choose the right people for the right tests. So the take home I have for you, I mean, I did a, a vertigo talk that day anyway, but um, it's actually, is it paroxysmal versus vertigo versus, well, why is it vertigo? Well, then next is, is it paroxysmal or is it persistent? 
All right, do not do an IMS exam on someone with a paroxysmal because that's completely wrong. All right, because of how the nature, specifically the hate impulse test. In a normal person, when you do hate impulse test, obviously you don't have that corrective saccade, meaning you trust. No matter how you trust the head, all right, the eyes still stay still, as opposed to you do that, right, and you just correct. And that's actually a good sign. So abnormal compared to a person, but it's actually a, a good sign for the patient, mm -hmm. which makes things every, very complicated. That's why the HIMS exam has a major pitfall, all right? My take home from that, and I think the biggest confusion most people have is when people present a story to me and tell me that they've done both a Dick's Hall Pike and a HIMS. Which is what the study's talking yeah, about. The study you've already got no idea what you're talking about, yeah. right? Because the idea behind the Dick's Hall Pike is that you are trying to provoke like you've got no problems at the moment and you're doing all this like moving them all sorts of directions to provoke them from having vertigo. Whereas hence you have to be baseline vertiginous right now for me to do it. So if you're trying to um, do a dick score pipe on a vertiginous person, you're just a really slight person. <laughs> you're going to make it worse and you're not going to make it any better. So just have a very clear differentiation between when you use both of those tests. Yeah. Um, I'll show you can I just, in a while. Yeah. Can I just clarify something about that? Because this is a question I just listened to, like, uh, March EMA, like, from MRAP yesterday, or half of it anyway, and they covered exactly what you guys just said. Yeah. Um, and I did not realize until now that you can't use hints for intermittent vertigo. Um, I've had quite a few patients where, you know, they've got a history of paroxysmal vertigo, but, you know, they've presented the, to the emergency department because on this occasion the vertigo has lasted the last hour or so and they're very symptomatic and they continue to be symptomatic. Um, and so then when I've done the hints on that situation, it has suggested a peripheral thing, like, you know, they've got a saccade with it. Um, and then but, I'll... Well, I actually find it quite specific, actually, for vestibular neuritis. So if you actually see, I should feel really reassured personally I don't yeah. have the data. I, I don't actually know all the details to back up. But I keep going. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I, will, I, I guess I had two questions. One is is if the history suggests intermittent vertigo. I, you know, I've had five episodes in the past where I've turned my head to the right and and had vertigo for twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and it's gone away. And then this time it hasn't gone away yet. Um, but they still have active vertigo at the time that you're assessing them. Can you use the hints? appropriately in that situation or is it just completely irrelevant because the history suggests that it's it's paroxysmal well i mean the, in that situation if the patient in front of you has active vertigo when they're still then yes you can do the hints yeah, yeah. That, that's the patient on whom that test was studied and so it still has diagnostic yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay it doesn't really matter what the history is because who knows how accurate these the histories from patients are yeah to start off with yeah but then also the patient's actively vertiginous in front of you. So it's an appropriate diagnostic test to use in that situation. Yeah, okay, cool. All right. And then the second question was, like, I've, I've had quite a few, as I said, where, where they've sort of been vertiginous for an hour or two, and then I'll do the Dix Hall Pike. Like, they'll be vertiginous, but I'll do the Dix Hall Pike to see if I can provoke like a positive sign to tell me that I can use an epilim maneuver and so then I'll do a Dix Hall Pike, it'll be positive, I'll do an epilim maneuver and then they're better. Um, but does the nature of that, I don't know if that's a bit con contradictory because like I know that by nature BPPV is only meant to last like 
half an hour or so, but sometimes they come in, they've, you know, had Mr. Vertigo since the morning, and then I'll do that process, the Dick's Hall Pike will be positive, and I'll do the Epley, and they'll get better. Nothing else should get better with an Epley. Uh, yeah. I mean, just thinking about it from an analytical yeah. perspective. If you've got any other diagnosis, it would be persistent and not improved by the epilepsy and not made worse by a whole pike. Yeah. Um, so I think my approach is if they've got persistent symptoms, you think about a Hintz exam. If it goes away in between episodes, then think about a whole pike to start with. Um, to be fair, nothing's perfect in terms of testing still. You have people that have somehow have persistent symptoms. They're quite uncommon. Right. Does it make sense? Yeah, that make that, that sort of makes sense. And so you you would do the even if their vertigo is completely resolved, you would then do a whole pack just to provide diagnostic value? No, I see. So if they're completely resolved, meaning no matter how they move and bend and whatever and they're fine, I wouldn't want to touch them because maybe you just move that alternate out now and then it cause them cause them more problems now. Mm. If they're not fixed, meaning they say every time I lie down now, every time I turn my head to the right, as we get it for lasting twenty seconds, that makes me vomit, it's worthwhile doing it. Yeah. yeah. So there's don't forget there's always a risk of actually making them worse when you're doing particle maneuvers yeah, particle maneuvers, uh, positioning maneuvers mm. or even the dick swap as well. Yeah. And then what also yeah, that makes sense. don't forget when you give standard two, which half the time they have it before you even see the patient. One, it makes your examination unreliable. You can't see anything now. Otherwise, they feel better. But did you fix them, or is it the medication that fixed them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it makes things really complicated. And treatment of treatment uh, treatment of efficacy can never be used as a diagnostic modality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to remember that as well. So someone gets better with Semitol if they've got a headache. And it's not specific. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a diagnostic tool that they don't have a sinister cause yeah. of, of headache. So uh, same with vertigo. So you can't use that as a diagnostic tool. Except with the epi, where I, you know, the epi cures it, then you could potentially say uh, that. Yeah, in that, in that situation, you're doing the whole pipe, which makes it worse, and then doing the epi, right? So the whole pipe yeah. is a diagnostic test. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense. All right. All right. I'll try and hurry to keep it from here. Anyone got any other questions? Makes sense. Neurology, so that was very good. Painful. Painful. Yeah. So. Da, 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 da. So we talk about the well, we talk about this, yeah. Yeah. So mine's uh, pediatric trauma. So this was just a case that I saw in the evening shift, right, um, at a kids' hospital. So quite a complicated case actually, um, because it's got medical flavor, it's got a very strong social flavor to it as well. Um, so it's a nine-year-old boy who basically was running across the road and got hit by a car. Thank goodness, it's actually on a stretch where the car was not going very fast, so maybe 15 k's per hour. Um, then some random bystander picked them up because guess what? There's actually no family parent around. Okay. And then brought him to a bus stop, put in a bus stop, called triple zero, and when the bystander went missing. Oh, Alright. <laughs> and then the ambulance stuff came, oh, it's just irritable crying and screaming appropriately. Alright. So so this is pretty much like a mist, right? There's a mechanism, that injury. So then it's got this big laceration up here. You can see the, the, the bone there basically, right, really deep. Um, so swollen on his left eye that basically he can't even, he can't even open his eye, he can't even pry it open either. Okay, which is a red flag. It's one of the one of the take-home messages today. Swollen, can't open. You think about um, the eye. Right thigh hematoma maybe is it's swollen there. Right ankle swelling. Um, yeah. And then signs. Um, so very hard to assess the pupils is because of how you can't open the left eye. The other thing is uh, this child is quite combative. Okay, and so when a child is combative, you start thinking. Is it that they're confused from a head injury thing, or is it just the pain, which is the most common reason, 
right, why are they combative? In this one, there's a component of both behavioral um, stuff as well as the pain, as well as maybe a bit of uh, concussion as well. So everything multifactorial. Uh, variable GCS we talked about that briefly. So um, this child is um, confused. Um, at best, they're orientated to person, meaning they know who, who was around them, but they don't actually know where, where they are or when 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 they are at. Um, and then the interesting thing is this patient keep having bradycardias. Okay, blood pressure is preserved, but don't forget bradycardias can be a sign of raised intracranial pressure, but also raised intraocular pressure. So there's something called the oculomotor reflex, for those who are unfamiliar, which probably was happening. So his um, pulse would drip, dip down to below 60, okay, by perfusing and talking to you as well. Um, so this is where the next part is the complex social stuff. Okay, so um, he only could give his first name to the ambulance, okay, but the police were onto it straight away. So apparently he's reported missing and wanted for stealing stuff. Potentially oh. even helping with stealing cars as well. Nine years old. A nine year old. Okay, so apparently he was he was found. Apparently he was together with his friends and stuff, so basically that company, stealing stuff and so on. And then uh, obviously no one can get in contact with the family. Alright. Uh, primary survey, so nothing really exciting other than we talked about the bradycardia and the GCS. Okay, let's move on to the short, short time. So again, on the, on the laceration itself, quite long, three centimeters, quite deep. Um, tender lateral orbital walls on the, on the outside. Okay, and then like I say, no matter how you try, one is not going to lie still for you and then you open your case because it's so painful. The other one is, um, um, even if you did, it'll be really, really hard. Okay, needs a lot of force. Um, and then very difficult to assess. Is it again confusion or not? Initially, quite a lot of places where you feel them, feel him, uh, even with the lock row, it's like, oh, I saw everywhere. And then you feel the same spot again, oh, it's not sore now. Like, so what else is going on? Okay, really, really hard. Again, part of, partly behavioral, probably, because he unfortunately doesn't have the best upbringing. And the other one also is uh, probably is in pain as well. Um, lower limb, not lip, lower limb, so it's right here, knee, knee and ankle or tender. And so again, how much tenderness is real? It's very hard. But they were a bit swollen, okay. Um, e fast, um, we did was negative. So at this part of time, this is where we like this child's quite difficult to assess. Clearly, there's some stuff going on. Clearly, we're gonna think about a uh, potential open fracture up there. Um, it's quite tender up there. Can't open his eyes. Um, maybe he's got a limb injury in the right lower limb. Uh, the GCS is it that he's got a brain bleed from the car accident, or is it a concussion? Or by least his GCS not bad enough. What do you think about the airway? Uh, social issues, for better or for worse, is not my current focus. So make sure it's okay first, and then we're trying to sort out the social stuff. Um, but at this time, we did call the social worker to come in. Uh, they're not on site at that time, so they say they'll come in and help, help us sort out that stuff. So that's fun for them. Um, then comes to the traditional difficult question. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the term pen scanning, we're doing a whole body scan, head, uh, brain, cervical, spine, chest, and local pelvis. All right. So obviously, you think about it, that would be the best test for trauma to look for uh, major injuries. The downside mainly is quite a lot of radiation. Uh, certain patients don't stay still for you as well. This one is one of them and the pain is not so sore. You can't even stay still for the scan. Uh, and the problem is no one thanks you for preventing that cancer for them in 20 years' time. Right? They will sue you for the injury you missed today. Right? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you have to advocate for that as well. So even with the evidence that um, is present. So there's actually no randomized control trial. There are few, there's at least, I think, five uh, meta-analysis, I think four or five meta-analysis, you know, up to date, you can see the short answer is controversial and there's no clear clear um, uh, guidance. guidance of what to do next. 
So some say you can even miss up to 18% of injuries if you do not hand scan them. That's a lot, all right? Um, there is definite evidence actually to show that the amount of time um, in ED is reduced and the amount of time wait, spent waiting for things to happen, say like a procedure and so on, is reduced. But then there's actually no significant, some say maybe there's improvement in mortality, some say not. So we're not really sure whether it, it, it is um, useful or not. And clearly we talked about the risk. So there's radiation, there's contrast as well. Contrast usually nowadays is, is not as significant as what we used to think, especially in the pediatric population as well. Um, okay. So personally, what I was goes, going through my head for any trauma patient, pediatric or not, is whether to think about whether to pen scan them is how severe the mechanism is. That's where actually most of the evidence lies that maybe will point towards more yield um, and, and obviously higher risk of missing something significant. So mainly it's about the mechanism, high speed MVA. Classically now, to make it more sensitive, our cutoff is 60 Ks per hour, all right, versus pedestrians especially. Fall from great heights, again, um, describe either at two, more than two meters or some, some studies talk about three meters, but here we're doing two meters. Um, for elderly, unfortunately, we're talking about fall from standing height. Okay, but do they all get a pen scan? This is a difficult question on its own. Uh, explosions, we almost never see that, but if you see one, think about multiple, uh, multiple injuries as well. We have blast injuries. Um, the next one, which is the main one that I always think of, can you actually assess this patient accurately? Because if you're not using the scan, you're going to use your clinical judgment. And can you actually take an adequate history? Have, um, for those, for the young players as well, don't forget, uh, pictures worth a thousand words. So the ambulance can take a picture and show you, you know exactly what happened in the accident. That's useful. Rarely some people actually have a video as well. Um, but can you actually assess the patient? Despite the mechanism, we also see people from Eastern Creek, motorbike, 220 case per hour, come out, no problem. Right? They come on their bike. So mechanism also doesn't always determine the injuries. Okay? But if they've got low GCS, right, they can't tell you whether they're in pain properly or if they're intubated already, you can't really assess them. You probably have to air on the self and hand scan them, especially if they're using it. What about um, anyone else? Yeah, look, I think it's the, the, that's basically what I do. So yeah. Patient factors and then obviously uh, <coughs> mechanisms as well. Yeah. I guess for you guys, as sort of senior CMOs here, you can't ask trauma to help you in this yeah. situation because the answer will be pen scan everyone. Yeah. Why? Because every back pain that's ever been admitted under a trauma service has a fracture because they don't see the ones that we discharge, right? So you need to be very careful in that situation. This is a decision, unfortunately, you'll have to make on your own. But it's basically, as Kurt said, those are the main factors yeah. that I think about. Yeah. And then also some of the studies talk about how initially if you don't pen scan them, some may end up having multi-regional images going back to the scanner too. Again and again, and then you, well, you have your pants anyway, but in like three different hours, mm -hmm. right? Not saying that, as in some patients end up like that, if they have to, that doesn't mean that you should have the pants scan everyone still, yeah. okay? Is pants scan CT? Yeah, pretty much. So a CT, um, whole body CT basically. Whole body CT with yeah. arterial face contact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although maybe, I don't know, we haven't seen that yet. Maybe if they come on, do whole body MRs in there? I don't know. I'm they guessing. do MRs of all sorts of stuff. I know. Um, but still not for trauma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there's not. I don't think evidence for for that trauma yet. Yeah. yeah, but they do the appendicitis ones yeah. as well. Um, so in this patient, there was no question that this patient either uh, because of that that concussion slash confusion, they're going to scan the brain either way. Mm. All right. And then usually one of the things we think about if you're going to do one scan, I'm going to do more scans. Mm. All right. Then try to tee them up together. Again, you can't really clear this patient's cervical spine because of that conscious state. So you're going to do the cervical spine as well. Um, initially, we're thinking about doing a hand scan because of the difficulty in assessment, but somehow, um, after a little bit of analgesia, a little bit more time, is it the concussion that improved? I don't know. Actually, the, the examination findings with the examination are actually more reliable now. 
you can say the tummy is actually nice and soft. Initially, earlier was like, oh, it's like tender everywhere, and like tender nowhere, tender everywhere again. But now it's clear, pretty fine. And the surgical, kudos to the surgical fellow that actually came down two or three times to actually review the patient before the scan happened. The only downside about a long wait for a scan, or the only benefit from a long wait for a scan is actually doing the serial examination. So we took more than an hour for the scan to happen, basically. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. No, because this was after hours. Mm -hmm. Oh, because you need to call them in. Yeah. 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 Okay. So next. So uh, yeah, we keep going. So blood to normal basically. Uh, the lower limb somehow imaging there was nothing exciting there. You know they'll be swollen. They they got a cam book for what's worth. And then uh, treatment wise, um, we're like mm, the 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 face is still quite swollen. Should get ophthalmology have a look. All right. And then plastics obviously look after the big lacerations that need a, a washer and so on. And then he saw enough to need a PCA, so anesthetics came down to help out anyway. And then this is interesting to talk about. So um, something that even the pediatric trainees also think forget about is tetanus. So don't forget your last shot for the DTPA is actually four years old. Don't forget you cut off five years for not so clean wound. Clean wounds after ten years. So actually, and then your next shot is usually when they are um, in eleven to thirteen years old in school. So don't forget, anyone after five years after four, between nine years, so nine, nine to about 11, 13 year old, they're actually protectionist um, 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 prone, as in they're actually susceptible, yeah. right? So you can always give them a booster. Obviously, if they haven't had their three shots, you have to think about um, um, the tetanus IG immunoglobulins as well. All right, so CT, have a look. Does so anyone want to describe the, the fracture? Or fractures? Yeah. Okay. You can just see that online as well. I mean, the, the good thing about that is you can compare the other side here. Yeah. The other side is nice and smooth. Yeah. Not so good side. Pretty. Yeah. Smashed. Um, interestingly, I've never encountered this before. It's called a blow in fracture. Because oh, yeah. why do this is like this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to say. Is the septum usually deviated? Well, we don't know. But there's a bit of crowding in the in, in the in the medial medial um, as in just just medial to the orbital wall as well anyway. You're crowding there. Okay. Mm -hmm. This looks very heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. mm. Alright. So the, it was reported as basically there was um, the blowing fracture but and a bit of hematoma on the outside. But they think when we say corner we mean the orbital compartment. So they don't think there's any hematoma in the compartment, uh, orbital compartment. And Sounds potentially reassuring, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then cervical spine is fine. Then ophthalmology obviously came along, and then as as we said, no matter how much I know, I mean, we're not initially we're not going to do any procedural sedation for the for the patient, mm -hmm. so it's quite hard to actually examine them. Mm -hmm. um, very hard to look at the eyes again, but I actually had to pry open. You know, it's quite it's quite heartbreaking because pretty, pretty much you give as much energy as you can, not sedating the patient, and then you you pry and they still cry anyway. Okay, and then I can see there's no RIPD. The pupils actually are fine, so that's good. So the so the brain's okay. That's before the brain scan, um, but they found that it's a bit um, tense when they push as well, and they actually have a special um, um, sort of tonometer that can actually go this way when they're lying down. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was actually hitting towards uh, pressure of um, when I was there with with them, it was like more than forty. Yeah, and then here's like 30 to 40, they've done like four times. Almost 20. Yeah, almost 20. So they decided to actually proceed with uh, lateral cantotomy anyway. Was that before the CT or after CT? Uh, after. After. Because they don't know what's going on first. 
and then comes to okay, you're gonna do this lateral pentotomy now. Obviously, and I'll say it is actually very hard to do on someone's eye that is swollen or shut. Yeah. You always practice on those pigs and other things where you can lift it and put yeah. the scissors under. When it's so tense, you literally can't fit anything under. Yeah. You almost have to get yeah. a blade and just cut it. Like and then, as I say, I was quite happy that the ophthalmology person was there. Yeah. Doing it, we needed to go find fine instruments from theatre mm. when I last did it because you just the suture kit, you know, the the things in the thing, it does not fit. Yeah, so it's enough. a lot harder than it looks. I just scalpel. Yeah, scalpel. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so it comes to it comes to the difficult decision that I had to make for tertiary level E. So. Should I sedate the patient here or should they go to the operating theater for this? Mm. And then obviously this after hours as well, operating theater, there's still there's still quite a lot of lag time. Yeah. And to be fair, we did miss this for quite a few hours already. Mm. Alright, so the, the short answer is always if there's compartment, we call this orbital compartment syndrome. Mm. So the longer it is, the worse it is. I think the, the classic dish is what, six, seven hours? Yeah, that's where you can go hold line really. Yeah, your provision, yeah, your provision pressure from the arteries supplying the optical, optical, basically the pressure is lower than the actual optical compartment itself, like any compartment syndrome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then the pros of doing this was about this. Is that part? Sorry, just a question. Yeah, when you do the lateral candidate, yeah. does something, the eye just goes, nothing comes forward. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually to be compressed. So the, um, I'm not sure that the video I'm going to show actually tells you about the anatomy. So basically the, um, uh, the ligaments around the area keep the eye um, in, in the space by releasing those ligaments. You, are, you allow the eye to prop those and re release the pressure. And then what, what's more definitive? Let's say the swelling goes down, yeah. the eye retract by itself. Yeah, so usually it does. So interestingly, this patient didn't actually have a corrective procedure afterwards. So depending on how you did the procedure initially, um, some people actually have to actually like close, close down, but quite commonly actually is fine without. And then just do some topical antibiotics for short term as well. And then, and then if it doesn't work, then the other thing is usually you start with your inferior ligaments and you can actually do your superior ligament as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I'll show you the video in a while. Thanks. I'm not sure we got, we've got a bit of time. Yeah. So anyway, the, the decision, which is difficult, is should, should you occupy a resource bay, occupy a resource nurse, and then don't forget there's recovery time after the procedure sedation as well. So there's quite a lot of time. Um, in the end, just because of the urgency, you just did it there anyway with some um, IV ketamine, which is groundbreaking for the kids. Yeah. Maybe, right? oh, yeah. still. Yeah, yeah, still, still is. I mean, by spine. Really spasm, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, we gave uh, one milligram per kilogram ketamine, and then along the way, small amount of doses. Just be careful once you keep high doses, because well, that's intubating dose now. You went to three to four milligram per kilogram. Mm -hmm. Have you recovered that well? Uh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So we did that. Like and then what well, was helpful, I think I included here, the, the anesthetic ratio came down for the PCA and then it was hanging around for a while. I said, hey, can you help us with this so that I don't have to get tied, up, tied in here. Mm -hmm. So at 10.30 he was still standing there, helping, so helping them with this wow. sedation as well. Okay, um, so this was a resource that's used for, I put a QR code there, so if you want you can scan it now as well. Um, so this is actually from the Emergency Care Institute, part of the uh, Agency for Clinical Innovation. Um, so for those who haven't seen this, is actually all the Pretty much, I think almost every single emergency procedure you can think of. Maybe not basic candidation in there, but the emergency stuff, including lateral pentotomy. Um, so it's accessible on internet, and it's actually got a good vertical section as well. So actually, um, there are three videos based of this. I can't remember his name now. Uh, he's an emergency physician in Ottawa, but he's actually now the, the clinical subject expert for tinternis for vertical as well. He's actually rewritten the whole chapter. Wow. So it basically talks about what we just talked about as well. Okay, but worthwhile videos. Very good videos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this is basically the video. Let me click that if you don't mind. This is actually the video for Off Can Talk Me and then we're done. Inside, so. This video was intended for clinicians in the emergency department. It contains <laughs> surgical <laughs> procedures. Listen <laughs> to patient supine, and you'll need one assistant. Apply one to two drops of omethacaine to the affected eye. Inject one to two mils of lignocaine with adrenaline into the lateral canthus, directing the needle tip away from the globe. See, Irrigate the eye with normal saline. To the orbital rim for one minute and then remove. Just because there's really arteries there, and compress arteries. Incise one centimeter with the scissors from the lateral corner of the eye, extending laterally outward to the orbital rim. Retract the inferior eyelid with the forceps. Identify the inferior crust of the lateral canthal tendon. Incise the inferior crust of the lateral canthal tendon and throw it posteriorily with the scissors. You should now reassess the eye for improvement. Yeah, quickly run through that again on the other eye. Use a methacane and irrigate the eye. Crimp the lateral canthus with the hemostat to the orbital room for one minute and remove. Incise one centimetre with the scissors from the lateral corner of the eye, extending laterally outward to the orbit. Retract the inferior forceps. Identify the inferior crust of the lateral canthal tendon. Incise the inferior crust of the lateral canthal tendon and throw posteriorly with the scissors. And this is canthalysis. Reassess the eye for improvement. By visual acuity, the resolution of the relative afferent pupillary defect, and decrease in intraocular pressure at least less than 40 millimeters. If no improvement, confirm canthalysis and proceed to divide the superior crust of the lateral canthal tendon. View the written procedure guide. Know the indications, contraindications, risks, alternatives, and follow PPE and consent processes relevant to the procedure. Any questions otherwise? If you did that, yeah, surely that would not heal by itself. Oh, it gets repaired later. It can get repaired later. Depending, I guess, it depending on how how deep you have to do it and so on. Yeah. Um, no, a lot of them don't need repair. If you just cut the inferior tendon, some just sure like back together. Really? Mm. It's a flat. I feel like they cut mine pretty pretty big. The ones that we do <laughs> probably need. They don't yeah. repair. Yeah. Yeah. The one that I Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no, I mean, sterile gloves, yeah, yeah. short slash some yeah. So usually, usually, again, don't forget coax and alcohol, not very friendly to iodine. I was going to say coax, I meant like iodine, literally. Yeah. It doesn't actually matter. But then don't forget later, this is usually followed by chlorine, phenicol, drops and ointments as well. Do you need any aesthetic or just no? Usually, this is usually in combination with something else. Quite commonly, they open fracture, then you probably give something anyway. Yeah, yeah, to cover the skin box. Yeah. Any other questions otherwise? For anything otherwise?
Amazing. Cool. All right. Thank that was really cool. Thank attention. you. Thanks.